You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Um, If you guys would turn with me to the letter 1 Peter. Be in verses 3 through 5 this morning. It's always a challenge for me as a young preacher um, to decide on a passage when it's not cut out for me or assigned to me. Um, for some time at my home church, I've been preaching through the letter of Colossians very, very slowly over the last three years, and I've never had to wonder what I'm preaching next. So I stood and looked at the vast ocean of God's Word and was excited and terrified and, and prayed for the Lord to settle my mind on a passage this morning. Um, and that is, that is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Um, I prayed to the Lord for something that is timely, um, maybe often overlooked by Christians today, something that might be particularly appropriate to hear, given our current context in which we live as Christians, something that might help to calm the fears and, and troubles of our souls and, and lift our eyes and our hearts again to the unchanging character and nature of God and His promises. And I doubt there's, there's really any portion of God's Word that can't do that for us. Um, But I was drawn to this passage, which I think we could accurately describe as a hymn of hope to the triune God. This first letter of the Apostle Peter was was written sometime after AD 60 from a location he only describes as Babylon, um, what many would describe uh, or, or call Rome, the seat of power for the dominating empire and really for the pagan world at the time. Peter addresses his letter to the elect exiles in the dispersion in verse 1 of his letter, the dispersion was a common Greek term, diaspora, um, for Jews living outside the region of Palestine, outside of their home country of Israel, many of whom had remained dispersed, exiled since the times of the Old Testament, when the people of God were taken out of the promised land and into the Babylonian exile. But given the way Peter writes to his recipients, it's likely that he's not just writing to Jewish Christians, but to Gentile converts as well. And Peter writes to these elect exiles these people chosen by the sovereign grace of the Godhood, we see in in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Paul writes these words of of comfort, encouragement, endurance in the face of persecution and and ridicule and, and slander. And Peter's point in using these Old Testament concepts is to connect the existence of all New Testament believers to the saints in the Old Testament as those chosen by God, set apart from the desires and practices of the pagan world around them, and yet living in the world as those no longer belonging to the nations in which they find themselves. Every Christian from the time of Peter, really from the time of Genesis, um, into our current age is to be considered an exile, a sojourner on the earth. At odds with the culture in which he lives, there was no known systematic persecution at the time that Peter was writing. Um, but only what was common for Christians of the day. Insults, slander, beatings, social estrangement, sporadic acts of violence, increasing pressure from governments through legislation and law enforcement, the same things our brothers and sisters in Christ have experienced across the world, in different parts of the world at different times, since the time that Christ ascended to the throne. And now some of the same things that we are beginning to be acquainted with in our context as believers, and may yet grow more familiar with as our culture regresses and our society is progressively given over to the wrath of God. 
Paul's letter to the elect exiles in his day should seem to us, it doesn't in actuality increase in relevance, but it should seem to us to become increasingly more relevant and timely as we discover in this society that this world is not our home, as we rediscover that fact. Its governments are not our governments. This culture is not our culture. Its entertainment is not our entertainment. Its politics are not our politics. Its values are not our values. It doesn't share our worldview. And I think it can be discouraging for us when we who have enjoyed really a rest from the suffering of the rest of our brothers and sisters in Christ across the world for a couple hundred years to look out and we suddenly see a sea of lostness around us. A sea of those who no longer profess Christ, even if they didn't possess Christ. But Peter writes here in this letter to settle the spirits and adjust the vision of the elect exiles in 1 Peter. He writes to strengthen their resolve as servants of Christ and to spur them on to continued lives of holiness and faithfulness for the glory of God, even among those who are perishing. Nothing is lost for us as believers. Nothing is ever lost for us as believers. Nothing we truly have can ever be lost as Christians because all we truly have is Christ. We can lose the culture war around us and have lost nothing in the end because we have a different hope, another hope, an eternal inheritance secured by the living and loving triune God. And toward the end of helping us as God's elect exiles better understand and rejoice in our internal inheritance to worship intelligently, Peter begins the body of this letter with what could be called a hymn, a sweeping doxology that summarizes the wonderful experience and promises of our salvation. This hymn sings of our distinctly Christian hope in a distinctly Christian God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This hymn is intended to produce in us the distinctly Christian expression and attitude of blessing, of joy, of thanksgiving, something that our culture is about to celebrate with little appreciation, little knowledge. Um, I was remarking to uh, my wife who is, who is in retail, it, it's annoying to me how quickly we skip past Halloween go right past Thanksgiving and into the commercial enterprise that is Christmas. That's because this world is not Christian. They don't stop and, and give thanks to God, praise God for the salvation they have in Christ because they have no salvation in Christ. Peter's hymn begins in a very Jewish or Old Testament way with a sort of a Shema, an address of praise in the form of blessed be God. But Peter addresses God not simply as creator or general benefactor of creation, not just the father of the world, he is the Father, primarily not our Father here, though we claim Him as Father through Christ, but the Father of the Son. With just one exception in the Gospels, every time Jesus addresses God, He calls Him Father, claiming the Father's nature for Himself, an eternal divine life, the same essence and being of the Father. Jesus makes clear that He is fully God, and He is to be known and worshipped and believed primarily in view of His relation to the Father as the Son. The Father is known primarily in the New Testament as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father and Son, sharing the same divine essence and will and being with the Holy Spirit. Already mentioned in verse 2 of the chapter. That the Father is known as the Father of the Son does not depersonalize our relationship to God. He is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one through whom we lay hold of the promises and inheritance of God. Um, a couple commentators I read describe Peter's use of the full redemptive title of Jesus here as a concentrated confession concerning who Jesus is for us. He is our Lord, our sovereign ruler. As Jesus, He is the incarnate Son. As Christ, He is our Messiah and King. There is no hope except in this God. There is no inheritance or hope of joy in any God but the triune God, Father, 
Spirit and Son. There is no blessing from any God except the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have here in this beginning verse the one whom we are to bless. Not blessing God in the sense of rendering Him any benefit. Um, We cannot give Him anything. We don't do anything for Him. We can't make Him better. We can't meet His need. He has no need. He cannot gain anything from us. Rather, we bless Him here in that we thank Him. Acknowledging and, and recognizing His worth. Ascribing to Him the praiseworthiness and the beauty and the glory that is due Him for what He has done for us. This is what the enjoyment of real hope produces for a Christian. Authentic praise and thanksgiving that transcends temporal circumstances. We as those who are blessed by God, eternally in Christ, bless Him continually in our lives. We return to Him the joy that He has given us in Himself. God's intention in this text, Peter's intention in this text, is that we can endure hardship and exhaustion and anger from the culture by rejoicing in the realities of our salvation. To be assured and and comforted. This hymn of hope inaugurates a section on the Christian life, verses 3 through 12. I will not cover that this morning. I could not hope to exhaust what is there. I can't hope to exhaust all the wonders found in verses 3 through 5, but I want to give you some key facets of our great hope, our inheritance from God. We have a living hope, a heavenly inheritance, and a preserving power. So I'm going to read the text. Um, from verses 1 through 9, pray and ask the Lord to help us, and then we'll dig in. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Father, I thank You for this time together, Lord. The joy, the the sweetness that it is to be gathered together as Your people in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, I pray that You would cause us by Your Holy Spirit, that You would open the Word to us and open our minds to understand the Word, Lord, that we would see what is true about Christ here in the pages of Your Word. See what is true about your great salvation, about your nature, God. Lord, that we would rejoice. That we would be knit together in a common hope, a common love that we have from Christ and that we share with one another, Lord. That we would rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, knowing that we will obtain the outcome of our faith. That what you have begun, you will complete. I praise you that salvation belongs completely to you that you have purposed it, 
and initiated it, that you'd continue it, that you will accomplish it, Lord. I pray that in response, we simply humble ourselves, God, and say with Peter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. So firstly, here in this text, Peter reminds us as Christians, as those who are foreknown by God the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, who are now obedient to Jesus through God's work, sprinkled with his blood, we have a living hope, a hope that does not fade with time the longer we wait on it, a hope that does not die with unexpected turns of events. Our hope does not rise or fall on political outcomes or court decisions. It will not be established with a red wave at the midterm elections. It is not shaken by trials and sufferings, which are themselves only the confirmation of Jesus' words and a means that God uses to test and to refine us as we wait for our hope. The Christian hope is not like the world's hope as wishful thinking. I hope it will rain. I hope Caleb doesn't preach too long. Some uncertainty regarding the future. The Christian hope is certainty. It's confident expectation. Patient waiting on something already accomplished, but not yet revealed. Our hope of salvation is as permanent and unchanging as the God who promised it. Established in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our hope is of an inheritance here. A spiritual allotment. More tangible and more real than the earthly inheritance of the promised land for the nation of Israel. Peter's doxology first addresses with blessing the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and does so on the basis of His, that is the Father's great mercy. This is the source of our hope. The Father in His mercy. We often speak of the the mercy of the Son, of Jesus Christ humbling Himself to the point of taking on human flesh, dying in our place on the cross, but this merciful mission of Jesus was carried out in His submission to the will of the Father. The mercy of the Son is the mercy of the Father. The mercy of the Son is an expression of the mercy of the Father, is the motive of our salvation. The Father is the architect of God's plan of salvation. Mercy here is not the same thing as God's grace, though gifts of God's grace come surely from the Father as well. Mercy here meets misery. Peter does not describe the misery. He implies it. He alludes to it that was met by the Father's mercy, but is fellow apostle Paul does in a very similar passage in Titus 3. In describing the, Christians, or the Christian before God's work of salvation, before His mercy, he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is every human being in his natural condition without the mercy of God. Foolish rebels against God. Disobedient, misled slaves of sin. Can do nothing but sin. Want nothing but sin. Hopeless haters of God and those made in His image. Having a deficient and deformed mind morally. Having a heart that despises God's authority and hates Him for His holiness. Having a selfish nature that cannot truly love others without greedy or selfish intent. Passing their days, it says, on the earth mindlessly, without ultimate purpose or goal, without peace or satisfaction, without hope of anything in life or in death except the judgment of God. The greatest misery of all is that apart from the reason of God, no person outside of Christ can even fully comprehend their misery. Apart from Christ, you don't know how bad off you are. You don't know the peril that you're in. This is not a misery that comes from life circumstances or earthly troubles, from living in the fallen world. This is a misery that comes from who you are by nature. 
Only God knows the extent of this miserable condition. And only God can meet that misery with mercy. Paul uses his favorite conjunction here in Titus 3. He says, but. When condensed, but God. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. What should naturally follow Paul's description of our misery that Peter alludes to in his hymn are the words, and God. I know why this is his favorite conjunction. And God destroyed His enemies. And God gave these miserable creatures what they deserved. And God rained down justice upon the heads of sinners, establishing His holiness, glorifying His name, preserving His holy law. And God gave them hell, the very desires of their hearts. It's not what we get in Titus 3 or in 1 Peter 1. And that should cause our hearts already to sing with praise this morning. Paul says and Peter implies, but God our Savior appeared. The Father in this context and what appeared with Him was not justice on us or wrath that is being revealed against all the unrighteousness of men. Not condemnation, but salvation. His goodness and His loving kindness. Everything that He is in grace towards sinners. Things that we had no right ever to see. Instead of the boot of God's just judgment upon us miserable sinners, we encountered the gentle hand of the Father. It appeared unexpected, uncalled for, unmerited. It appeared for us. A warm loving kindness which was concerned to relieve us of our misery. The Father, Peter and Paul say, saved us. The Father is called Savior here. He took our sin, our depravity, and our desire for sin away from us, relieving our mercy, the cause of our mercy. It is not what comes from, out, from outside of the man that defiles him, but from within. The cause of your mercy is your sin. He took our suffering, both present because of sin and future because of sin and hell, and He did it not because of works done by us in righteousness. We have none of those. Not because we blessed Him in any way, but because of His mercy. This is not an emotional response on the part of the Father. There's nothing for the Father to respond to in us, but our sin with wrath. His mercy is not an emotional reaction by our peril. The mercy of the Father is a free, divine choice to meet the miserable sinner, the miserable and pitiful condition of sinners with the compassion of God. It was a choice and a plan. That's the preposition according to His mercy. There was something carried out according to this, this foundation of our redemption. The Father's mercy is what makes the exiles in 1 Peter elect. They are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, an affection, an intimacy set upon us before the foundation of the world. Before you existed, God knew you. Before you were born Christian, He loved you in Christ. Before your misery, the Father had purposed His mercy. This is the only qualification God has to receive His inheritance. It is the Father, Paul says in Colossians 1, that has qualified us to receive the inheritance of the saints in light. The only qualification needed is mercy. No works, no righteousness of our own, no choice that we make. One thing is required for you to be qualified for the inheritance of the saints. Qualified to be a citizen of the kingdom of the beloved Son. A son in the household of God. And that is His mercy. There's one thing that qualifies you for mercy, and that's only your misery. There may not be any place that believers truly belong in this world. There's not any place that believers truly belong in this world. Nowhere they can truly call home or be at peace, but there's one place which they are totally 
eternally qualified to be. The kingdom and household of God based nothing but on your need and the choice of the Father to meet that need. The Father accomplishes and expresses His mercy toward us in His sovereign transformation of sinners by the Spirit. This is the guarantee of our inheritance. The action of God that follows His merciful purpose in Christ. We are saved, delivered from sin in the sanctification of the Spirit. Peter says in 1 Peter 1-2. There meaning the setting apart of sin or from sin. The purification for God's service. This setting apart from sin is what the Father accomplishes according to His mercy. By causing us to be born again to a living hope in 1 Peter 1-3. Paul says that the Father saved us according to His great mercy in Titus 3 by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We see here that the Father's merciful purposes are not passive. He did not wish us to be delivered from our sin. He did not simply pity us as He watched us perish. His mercy is why the Holy Spirit is sent from heaven in verse 12 of 1 Peter 1. By whom His people preach the good news to Peter's audience, His mercy is extended through the work of the Holy Spirit who turns our miserable condition on its head. The foolish rebel and misled slave and hopeless hater in Titus 3 is changed. Met with the Father's mercy when he is born again. We know from Jesus' conversation in John 3 that to be born again is a work done only by the Holy Spirit. Apart from the will or the effort of man, one cannot see or enter the kingdom of God, Jesus says, unless he is born again, born from above sprinkled with water and given the Spirit. Peter says in verse 23 of the chapter, through the living and abiding Word of God, we are born again. He brings us the Gospel through His people and He causes us to actually hear it. He creates us anew inwardly. He regenerates us. He gives us new eyes and new ears that are able to respond to the Word of Christ. He gives us faith and repentance from our sin. We are new creatures New people with new hearts and wills and desires. Where there was foolishness, He made us wise to salvation. Understanding the things of God. With hearts that hate sin and love God and respond to Christ in repentance and faith. Where there was slavery to sin and to the flesh, He made us captives to the will of God in Christ. Where there was hopelessness and hatred, He caused us through the hearing of the Gospel of Jesus to be raised to new life, inwardly born again to a living hope. In Christ's love, where there was separation from God, He gave us Himself. He poured out the Spirit in our hearts. Poured out His Spirit on us richly, Titus 3 says, through Jesus Christ our Savior. The indwelling of God's Holy Spirit is what enables, what empowers our lives as exiles upon the earth. He gives us understanding and belief in His Word. He works to purify us and edify us as God's people for His service and sanctification. These are two doctrines here, the foreknowledge and electing mercy of the Father, the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit, the source and the guarantee of our hope. Two doctrines that among men are most debated, most hated, most despised. God's election and the Spirit's grace in regenerating us before faith. Peter says that the Father's election and the Spirit's regeneration before a person ever professes faith in Christ are causes not for conflict or debate or anger, they are the cause for thanksgiving. The doctrine we might know as monergism, that our merciful God chooses those on whom He will have mercy, and then He makes them alive spiritually when they were totally dead in their trespasses and sins, is why we bless our God. It's the natural gospel reaction to God's grace. It's why that God is our God. 
and not our enemy. He saw us in our blood, lying on the side of the road, perishing in the way, and He said to us, live. He saw us in the grave, and rather than leaving us to our fate, He called out to us to come. To come out and to cast off our grave clothes. To come to Him, to be enslaved no longer. Is there any greater picture of God's incredible mercy than the Father's electing loving mercy on us through the Spirit? The Father's mercy is what qualifies you to come to Him. The Holy Spirit's regeneration is what causes you to come to Him. Through the faith that He gives you in the Son, the hatred of sin that He causes in you as a new creature. There is no life apart from Him. There is no life in you apart from the Spirit in you. Apart from the Father's mercy, you had no reason to expect any future. Any future from God but punishment. With the Spirit's indwelling, you have every reason to expect to receive the fullness of God's salvation. The Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance, Paul says in Ephesians 1, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. It's the indwelling presence of the Spirit that fulfills and proves the Father's continued mercy in us. If you were at the conference, you heard the word perichoresis. The mutual indwelling of the people or the persons of the Godhead. You don't just receive the Spirit. You receive the Father and the Son when you receive the Spirit. He will not take His Spirit away. He will not take Himself away. You have all of God. You have all of God's goodness. All of God's goodwill towards you in the Spirit. It is by the Spirit that the Father of the Son becomes our Father. As the Spirit testifies to our own spirits that we are His adopted children in Romans 8 by whom we cry, Abba, Father, God does not pour out His Spirit haphazardly, temporarily, partially. He has poured out on us as Christians richly, lovingly, by God's choice. God does not change His mind. He is not a man that He should have regret or change His mind. The Father's mercy on your great spiritual misery as a sinner means that He will have compassion on you in all your miseries as a son. There is no suffering as a Christian, that your father is not acquainted with, that your father does not care about you in, that your father does not purpose to meet with his mercy. If you've believed in Christ this morning, you've done so by the Holy Spirit sent from the Father, and you then have the Holy Spirit, a guarantee of all God's goodwill towards you in Christ. The Father's plan to show you mercy in your sin means that he is compassionate with you in all things. He's showing you that continued compassion. And that includes a compassion that results in your hope, your knowledge. The Holy Spirit is given to you, Paul continues in Ephesians 1, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward those who believe? According to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. God not only desires you to be saved according to His mercy, but to know that you are saved. And to experience the benefits, the, the work, the transformation of his, of his salvation throughout your Christian life. Until the time that you are finally saved. Fully conformed to the image of Christ. The Father's mercy is the source of your hope. The Spirit, the guarantee of your hope. The means by which you realize that hope is believers. The life of the Son is the object of your hope. It is through the resurrection of Christ, here in verse 3, that you are born again to a living hope. The triune work of God in redemption is empty and incomplete without the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There is no ground or foundation of hope for the Christian without it. The Father's desire to show you mercy 
to show mercy to lost and dead sinners cannot come at the expense of his justice, of his punishment upon sin. Jesus speaks time and time again in the Gospels, especially in John, of his merciful mission after the will of the Father to ransom a people the Father has given him, to lose none of them, but also to lay down his life for them. The Father's election does not contradict his judgment upon sin. It is what necessitates the cross. His desire to show you mercy necessitates justice upon the cross. To be merciful, God must be judge. Our sin must be punished. To be the agent of the Father's mercy, our Savior was judged on the cross for the sake of our sin. Only a triune God can be both just and merciful toward our sin. Yet for our hope to be a living hope, we must not only have a judge Savior, a Son who sacrifices Himself, but a living Savior, a conqueror, It is the resurrection that shows that the Father is satisfied with the sacrifice of Christ. Totally and completely. Leaving only mercy for us. And that shows that the object of our hope in Christ is victorious over death. The resurrection of Christ is God's stamp of vindication upon the life and the work of Jesus Christ. The declaration that He is and will always be enough for those who simply look up to Him. Those who simply trust in Him alone as their sacrifice, their source of righteousness. Their hope of life beyond the grave. We who have the Spirit are in union with Christ by faith. As we die to our sin in His death, we also become unified with Christ in His resurrection life. Our hope is a living hope because the Son lives. And He lives for His people. He intercedes for them and He advocates for them before the Father. He ever lives to make intercession for them. To supply all they need to build his church to reign over the nations. Our hope is a hope of life because he was raised, and so we will be raised bodily. The Father gave you mercy because he gave you Christ. Spirit's regeneration is carried out through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What the Father purposes, the Son accomplishes. And it's that finished work of Christ that the Spirit applies. You have spiritual life because the Spirit. You have spiritual life by the Spirit because Christ was raised. The Spirit quickened you as a dead sinner because you were chosen by God before the foundation of the world and given to the Son who purchased you, who accomplished all of your salvation. And it's because the, Spirit, or because the Son purchased you, you specifically, that you have been raised by the Spirit. This is the essence of John 3.16, the great gospel verse that we as Baptists love to quote. For God, that means the Father, so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, the eternally begotten Son, Jesus Christ, that all those who believe, which is a work of the Spirit, would not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16 is a purpose statement. It's a summary of the triune plan of redemption. The Gospel is not Jesus' thing. It's God's thing. It's God's plan. It's God's accomplished work. And it's, it's amazing to me, in our, our modern evangelical context, we can see the three persons of the Trinity in John 3.16. We can see all that they've accomplished, all that they will do. And what we get out of that is the word whosoever. The most insignificant word in the statement. The Father loves the world, all nations, both Jews and Gentiles. He loves them so much in His mercy, apart from their merit, that He sends the Son that He sends the Son, that all who would simply look up to Him, all who would simply believe in Him, and that belief itself is a miracle by the Spirit. 
We were just told earlier in John 3, just told in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus that our belief, our belief is a miracle. A consequence of our new birth of the Spirit is what causes us to look up to the Son. You have faith in the life of the Son because of the Spirit's new birth. You are joined to Christ by the faith that the Spirit has given you so that Christ's death and life become yours. Paul tells us in Romans 6, this great promise, if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. You were raised by the Spirit because Jesus died for you. Because Jesus accomplished His atoning work for you. The very nature of atonement is that it is definite. There is no tab left at the cosmic bar of God's justice, some provision made for any who would be wise enough to take it. Jesus died in the sake, for the sake of His people. There was no atonement offered in the Old Testament that was for anyone who would come claim it. It was always for a people. It was always for a person. It was always for specific sins. And because the nature of the atonement is definite, so the work of the Spirit is definite. This is what Paul describes when he refers to a living hope, one that hinges solely on the life of the Son. And because of that, one that does not fade away and cannot be affected by the circumstances of this world. That living hope is most real to you when all your other hopes have died. When you despair of your righteousness and instead receive the mercy of God through the power of the Spirit and the righteous life of Christ, that living hope is real to you again as a Christian when you know everything else that you have hoped in and trusted in this life is a false hope. Everything else you thought you could depend on fails and turns to dust. Jobs are lost. Bank accounts are emptied. Clothes wear out. Cars break down. Homes burn. Properties devalue. Investments go bad. Health fails, intellect deteriorates, anything else you can trust in before God or in life disappears. They are dying hopes. But Christ lives. And all that is left is to turn and to look up to Christ again. It's that that moment that you rediscover a living hope, a heavenly inheritance. Spurgeon uses the illustration of Joseph in the land of Egypt, ruling and reigning a second hand to Pharaoh. And he writes back to Jacob Simply the message that he lives. That he lives and he has all that Jacob needs. Jacob need not bring any of his own possessions. He must simply go into the land of Egypt and let Joseph provide for him. Let that reigning son give him all that he needs. All the riches of Egypt are laid out before him. There was nothing else that Jacob could turn to in the land of Canaan. Everything was stubble. Everything was dry. There was nothing that could give life. Nothing that could sustain life. Nothing for which him to trust in. And that itself was the providence of God. Jacob would not have believed that if he had anything else left to cling to in the land of Canaan. And after the repeated testimony of Jacob's other sons, Jacob finally says this, It is enough. My son is alive. I will go to him. That's the hope of Christ. Everything else around us is dry. It is stubble. Nothing can give us life. Nothing can give us hope. We simply have the news from other sons, from other sons of God that simply tell us Christ lives. Christ is alive. All that He is is for you. The riches of God are laid out for you in Christ. And we can go into that Egypt of eternity knowing that Christ lives. That Christ lives and all that He has is ours. 
Peter here, by way of implication, is seeking to remind his readers that the country of their exile is nothing to feel at home in, nothing to hope in. You understand that when you understand the hopeless condition you were in as a citizen of this world, of the initiative of the Holy Spirit, apart from anything you could see, or anything that you could do to open your eyes to Christ, the resurrection life of Christ, you know how, that has overcome all the powers of this world and consequences that your worldly existence merited from God. It is a hope that was not begun by you, accomplished by you, apprehended by you. It is not one kept by you, Peter says, but in heaven, kept in heaven for you. Here again is the distinctly Christian nature of our hope. Hope is a certainty of a future fulfillment. What God has promised, He will do. What He has caused us to be born again to, He will cause us to finally receive. In verse 4, it says we are born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. We're not given a formula or a definition of this inheritance in the New Testament. We are given here three things that it is not. Imperishable means that this inheritance cannot break down. It does not erode. It is not acted upon by elements. It cannot die. It cannot be destroyed. It is of the same nature of the imperishable seed of which we were born again in 1 Peter, the abiding and living Word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades. Peter quotes, everything on earth is subject to change over time, but not God, His Word, or our inheritance. Our inheritance is also undefiled. It cannot be stained, blemished, made impure. It cannot be touched by sin, tainted by sin, affected by it. Our sin cannot cause it to be revoked like the inheritance of the Israelites who were cast out of the land which they defiled. Our inheritance is unfading. Its strength and beauty and value are not lost over time. It is as priceless and precious now as the day we heard of it. And if not more so to us as the day draws near. These qualities rule out everything that we know in this world. Everything that could be kept in this world, but is only kept in heaven for us, our inheritance, Peter says, until we take possession of it with Christ. As Matthew Henry writes, it cannot come to nothing. It cannot be spent. It does not fade. It is not sometimes more or less pleasant, but ever the same, still like itself. All possessions here are stained with defects and failings. Still something is wanting. All possessions are stained with sin, either in the getting of them or the using of them. God has not promised any of those things, any of these worldly possessions to us. He may or may not give them to us, but He has promised us the greatest thing. This language of inheritance is in keeping with the Old Testament concepts that Peter uses here. This inheritance is in one sense like the inheritance that the tribes of Israel received. Same word in the Greek, Septuagint. These allotments from God according to His choice for them in the promised land. And I think there's a key cross-reference that Peter is alluding to to here. In Numbers 18, Joshua 13, where God lays out the inheritance of the land for each tribe of Israel. Every tribe gets a piece of ground with one notable exception. Every tribe gets a portion of the earthly ground except the priestly tribe of Levi. To whom Joshua says, or God says in Joshua, but to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance. Just as He said to them, Every tribe except the Levitical priesthood got something tangible and immediate. A a geographical range which to cling to and to call home. But not the tribe of Levi. Their portion was not something tangible. Not something perishable. Not something able to be defiled. Not something fading, but something eternal. 
This is the internal inheritance for those born again of the Spirit to a living hope. Those who were not a people but are now God's people. A chosen race. A royal priesthood. A people for His own possession. God is our inheritance, saints. He is our promised land. He is our exodus from sin. He is our return from exile. The elect people of God are not given the temporary, but the eternal. Not the immediate, but the everlasting. Not even heaven, but what is kept in heaven. The very thing that makes heaven, heaven. The presence of the triune God who will dwell with His people forever. The fulfillment of our hope is not Life on this earth, it is also not merely eternal life. Living on or existing on forever is not something proprietary to Christians. Everyone will exist forever. In one sense, every person will live on either in the torment of hell or the rest of heaven. But even life in heaven is not the fulfillment of our hope. There is a gospel-less and a Christ-less Christianity which hinges its hope on life in heaven. That you can see your loved ones again. A humanistic hope that you will get bliss and all the earthly desires of your heart. A glorified American dream. That you can live in a mansion in the sky with your perfected family and your favorite pets. A simple continuation of your retirement but without the health issues. And difficulties of this present life. That's not our hope. Our inheritance is true fellowship with God. Life in the Son and with the Father of which the indwelling of the Spirit is a guarantee a down payment, a first installment as an engagement ring given to the bride of Christ so that we may know that He will return and that He will bring us into the house of the Father. Our inheritance is God and all that He is for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. The presence of God is all that is worth having in heaven. Guaranteed to us by the Spirit through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I wish I had the mind and the tongue to delve the depths of what that means for us. As saints. Fellowship with God for eternity. A fellowship that in one sense we participate in now. First John calls the fellowship of the saints. Fellowship with the Son and with the Father. By implication through the Spirit which He has poured out on us. But I can with Peter erupt into praise at the great mercy of God. Which would determine to change my sinful condition. My misery of sin and death into the unspeakable privilege of being an heir of hope. A co-heir with Christ and an heir of God. We see the source of our hope in the Father's mercy. The guarantee of our hope in the Spirit's indwelling. The object of our hope in the finished work of Christ. The fulfillment of our hope in the very presence of God Himself. And finally, Peter shows us the power that preserves us as those who hope in God. We as those who are mercied by the Father, born again by the Spirit, raised with Christ, named heirs of a heavenly inheritance, are, he says here, by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The very nature of hope, though already accomplished and infallibly promised, is that it is not yet seen. As Paul says in Romans 8, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope, we wait for it with patience. Waiting is often weary work. We grow impatient when our eyes drift downward toward the earth. When we no longer feel we have the strength to look beyond our present troubles to eternity and instead become fixated on the temporary, enamored with passing pleasures, longing for something visible and tangible to possess, like the Israelites who traded the glory of God for the image of the golden calf at Mount Sinai. 
And it's this loss of spiritual vision that tempts believers into all manners of doctrinal compromise. Popular movements, earthly agendas, social gospels that entice us to trade a heavenly, not yet seen inheritance for an earthly, visible agenda. The promise of God is not compelling to those of an earthly mind and a worldly hope. But those who are the objects of God's mercy, trophies of His grace, heirs of His glory, are also preserved by His power. Guarded by His dunamis, it says here. You are exiles upon the earth, Christian, not because your existence is temporary, but because the world's is. The world is passing away. It is prepared for fire. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead gives life to you, gives you understanding, the ability to obey the Lord and labor for the lost in view of His return. That same power that granted you faith maintains it in you. You did not produce it. You are not producing it now. It is a gift of God and one that by His grace He will not only preserve, but one that He will perfect. God's preserving power means that you will persevere as a saint foreknown by God, predestined by the Father, called by the Spirit, justified by faith in the Son, and promised to be glorified with Him. That His power is towards you to preserve you means that He will guard you in the sense that He will give you boundaries. This is the sense that David prays in, in Psalm 16, the lines fall for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a beautiful inheritance. These lines are boundaries from the shepherd that hem Him in, that guard Him from harm. It also means that He will afflict you. That He will pain you. That He will give you suffering. He will test and refine you. Test and refine your faith with various trials, reminding you again and again that you have the greater portion in Him. That you can't hold on to your worldly possessions. That you shouldn't because they aren't yours to keep. They're only yours to steward for the sake of the kingdom. He's refining you through worldly suffering for a little while so that He can prepare you for and compensate you with your glory in final salvation. Not your fame, but Christ's. And your conformity to His image. All suffering in the Christian life is a temporary sensation met with an eternal satisfaction. Because you know the mercy of the Father in Christ, you can be sure that every ounce of suffering in the Christian life, every ounce is constricted and controlled and administered by His hand for your glory, and, or for His glory and your good. What guards you until your final salvation is the sovereign hand that saved you. You were saved, predestined before the foundation of the world. You are saved, born again, made alive in the Spirit. You are being saved. Your sin is being taken from you. Also that you may know that you will be saved at the last time. There is a salvation, a final deliverance from all sin and suffering, full consummation of your redemption, new spiritual bodies, a completed sanctification, ready, prepared, waiting to be revealed at the end. The full might and ability of the Godhead is employed in preserving you. As the Father's will for us is continuously, unalteringly established by the Son and the Spirit. From beginning to end, salvation belongs to the triune God. You were foreknown by the Father in love before the world's creation because Christ was foreknown, Peter says later in the chapter. God purposed to ransom you with the precious blood of Jesus before your sins were committed and to secure your life in the resurrection of Jesus. Also that your faith, your present trust in His past work and your hope, your expectation of future grace are in God. 
Your salvation is from God and through God and to God. And so to Him be the glory, Peter says. Amen. What's the application here, the young preacher says at the end of every sermon? Why does Peter give us this doxology? To quote R.C. Sproul, who I think was quoting someone else, the beginning of all sound theology is doxology. Worship and adoration of the God who is and has done great things for us. It's why Peter begins this hymn of hope in a traditional fashion. Blessed be God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a joy and an adoration in which Peter wants all true believers to join him. Something we are to do as those who hear this hymn and who repeat this hymn to the glory of God. I would, at the risk of sounding pedantic, I would modify R.C. Sproul's statement to say that the end, the purpose of all sound theology, of all true doctrine, is doxology. We get Peter's intended response at the beginning of verse 6 as well. He says, in this you rejoice. The essence of our worship is joy or enjoyment of God. This is one of, if not the chief reason, we gather as saints. To rejoice in God our Savior and the sovereign triune God who saves sinners. There is no cause to rejoice outside of those who are His. Worshippers of a God who is not three in one, who is not the God of mercy, who is not both just and Savior, cannot sing this hymn. Mormons cannot sing to a sovereign God. They can sing to endless gods or to a demigod Jesus who is not foreknown by the Father before the foundation of the world. Muslims can sing half-hearted songs to a one-person God who is not Savior. But they cannot echo this hymn of hope to to the true God. There is little to rejoice in outside the church, but endless reasons to rejoice for us for all eternity. We are saved. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of Him, not because of Him who wills or Him who runs, but because of our God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has mercy. Peter gives you hope here this morning on changing truths about God that you can go back to again and again when waiting becomes weary and when feelings falter, when your subjective feelings of salvation waver and your heart grows weary and troubled, when your earthly troubles loom large and your thoughts of Him dwindle. Your joy as a Christian cannot rest on your subjective experience of salvation. It cannot rest on your feelings. You cannot judge yourself, saved, unsaved, faithful, unfaithful, by the strength of your feelings. Your feelings are not the ground of your hope, and therefore they cannot be the fuel of your worship. It's the objective truth of God's living hope and heavenly inheritance for you that renews your joy. Such was the experience of David in the Psalms as he longed to come before God and to forsake the troubles of his life. His earthly pains dominated his mind and overshadowed his soul. And in response, David pleaded with God in Psalm 43 to send out your light and your truth. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then, David says, I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. Joy follows these truths. Joy of salvation follows the sure hope of salvation and God's great promises. If you are dry and thirsty in soul this morning, numb because of the world's troubles, downcast in spirit, do what David did. Do what Peter does here in evoking heartfelt worship and thanksgiving to God. Show your soul again the truths of God's great salvation. He preaches to himself, why are you cast down O my soul? Why are you troubled within me? Hope in God. Hope in God. I will again praise Him. 
my salvation and my God, there is no other source of ultimate hope. Stop relying on false hopes. Your anxiety as a Christian, your stress as a Christian, your joylessness as a Christian. That's probably the strangest reality in our world, a joyless Christian. Your joylessness as a Christian does not come from dwelling too much or too often on the hope of God in Christ. It's the opposite. It comes from relying on lesser things for an ultimate hope. Take a fresh hold on God this morning. Hope in Him. Hold fast to Him. Praise Him again. It's in this well-grounded salvation, this reminder of the inheritance laid up for you, that fuels your joy in life, that spurs you on to active obedience, faithful labor for the Lord while it is yet day. There are many imperatives that Peter gives, how Christians should live in this hopeless society, in this hopeless world, this pagan culture. But he doesn't start there. He starts with this. He starts with your hope. He starts with your joy. The living hope of an inheritance, the presence of the triune God. Live as one who has hope in that God, who truly believes that these things are true. Live like they're true, Peter says in verse 13. Girding up the loins of your mind, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on God. The sure inheritance of our final salvation frees us to work and to endure. To lay down our lives and lives of service and sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. This hope frees us to live lives of holiness, even if that comes at great cost in the unholy places of exile. A refusal to compromise on the commands of Christ, on the holy standard of God's law, will draw attention and frustration, confusion, aggression from the world around us. Yet our trust is not in what the world can give. So we cannot be threatened by what the world can take away. Set your hope fully on God. Entrust yourself to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. Rejoice and roll up your sleeves. Worship and work for the glory of God. Live well in the time of your exile. If you bow with me. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. Unchanging words of promise, Lord, that we can give to our souls and give to those around us repeatedly so that we are continually changed by what we behold there, Lord, conformed to the image of Christ. I thank you for your faithfulness and your spirit in my weakness, in my lack as a preacher, God. I thank you for your truth. I pray that we would be um, bonded together in that truth, in the love that we have received from you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.